Hello and hi, welcome to another Slice of Sci-Fi. I'm Summer Brooks, and with me right now is director Daphne Bayware, who is the creator of a new documentary about the stories of Stephen King and how they have influenced an entire generation of filmmakers to put these unbelievably lush, dense, and terrifying stories on screen. So people who don't read books can also be as scared as the rest of us. (laughs) Hi, Daphne. Hi, nice to meet you. What inspired you to tell a story about the filmmakers who make the stories based off of Stephen King's stories? Well, actually, I've always been a huge Stephen King fan. Uh, I mean, I read all the books and seen all the films. And in 2019, I was talking with uh, Sebastian Cruz, who's my producer. And I was like, I really want to make a documentary about Stephen King, but to have another perspective you know on the subject because there was another I mean other films about Stephen King but each time it was more centered uh, on the books or on the author himself and I really wanted to have the chance to speak to the filmmakers because you know he's the most adapted living author so I thought that could be great to have the filmmaker's point of view and to understand a little bit more how they work, you know, th- th- their process when they adapt a book into a film. Yeah, that was, for me, very fascinating. We get to hear directly from the filmmakers like uh, Greg Nicotero and Mick Garris and Frank Darabont about what it was in King's novels that made them want to put those stories on film or on television. And I think, uh, what was it? I think Carrie was the second Stephen King movie that I had ever seen. But the one that affected me the most, I think, was Pet Cemetery. And hearing the perspectives of the people who made uh, Pet Cemetery and Cujo and Firestarter and, you know, especially Carrie for me, um, those hearing their stories about what excited them about Stephen King's books to put them on screen was fascinating. And you did a really, really deep dive into the Green Mile. I think that probably should have been a separate documentary because uh, there was just so much there and I could tell that there was so much more there. How long did it take you to sit down with these these directors and, and, and get their stories? Well, actually, we have 27 directors in the documentary and each time I spent like between one hour and two hours with each director. And when you talk to someone like Miguel or Frank Darabont, uh, it will last longer for sure because they made mm-hmm. so many 
adaptations. So they really uh, dig uh, Stephen King's work, you know. And it's really interesting to see how they process each film and how the difference as well, uh, when you see, for example, The Mist, um, Frank Darabont changed the end and it's not the same than in the book. So I, I think it was so interesting, you know, to talk about him, about why he made that choice and, and other choices uh, as, a, as a filmmaker and as well as a screenwriter. So yeah, I think we've got at the end something like 40 hours of interview, something like that. And we wanted to put so much in the documentary, but we, we couldn't put everything. So we plan on having a book uh, aside of the documentary with uh, the full length interviews, you know, so people could have a look and know a little bit more about uh, the documentary and about the directors mostly. Well, I understand that you have to you had to pick and choose what was going to be in the finished film because you can't have a four hour film in you know theaters not anymore anyway. But when this comes out on Blu-ray, will more of those be available on the disc? Because I know a lot of people, including myself, would like to see the longer versions of some of those interviews. I'm not sure exactly what will be on the Blu-ray because it's um, it's uh, I won't be uh, like involved in the in the the process, but I know that on the French version there will be some uh, some bonuses. I think on the the American Blu-ray as well. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly how much things there will be, but uh, I know there are some great behind the scenes stuff so yeah it should be it should be quite interesting to have a little bit more insight yeah so are you more involved with the the companion book that's being made from this well uh regarding the book uh, we are uh, trying to find someone to to edit it uh, and to to release it i mean so it's uh, still in the in process for now, but uh, yeah, uh, I will. I think uh, give a few a few statements and have a, an interview in it. So yeah, that should be that should be a nice book as well. <laughs> so how long in total did it take to set up and record all these interviews? Because I. I can't see that all of these guys were in California or in one place. You probably had to go several places to to talk to everyone. Absolutely. And in fact, we began the documentary just before COVID. So that was quite uh, difficult to organize everything. So that's why it took so much time. Uh, it took us like three years to make this film, uh, which was the the longest time I've ever worked on a project, honestly. Um, and since a lot of the directors, well, I mean, some of the directors were outside of the US, but most of the directors were between California and uh, the East Coast. So we were able to see 
each of them, um, except for a few ones like Michael Astrom, for example, he was working at that time in London and it was just before the lockdown. Uh, so we had the chance to find a team available in London to film and I had to make the interview through Zoom. And it was the same with the Australian directors. Uh, also a question about budget for sure, because we couldn't go like, you know, uh, in the US everywhere and then Australia and Canada. So <laughs> basically we, we had the, the, the chance to meet all the directors uh, directly who were in the United States, but uh, the one who were based in Canada, Australia, uh, we had to do it remotely. Did you get a chance to talk to Brian De Palma about Carrie? Unfortunately not, but uh, I would have loved to. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't. But um, the same with John Carpenter and David Cronenberg, Marie Lambert. So it was a little, a little bit of shame for sure. But uh, yeah, we we tried. <laughs> <laughs> so how? I guess, how did you decide on the structure, the order in which you would talk, uh, like the order that, that ends up in the finished film? How did, how did that structure get, uh, get decided on? Well, we worked a lot with, uh, with my team on that because we, we couldn't have something like chronological, you know, it wasn't working at all. Uh, we tried several things, but the, the only thing that really worked was when we decided to have something, you know, to pull a string in the documentary and go through the several themes that are very present in uh, every Stephen King book, you know, for example, politics, um, family, the family unit, you know. So we decided that it was um, easier to go from one topic to the other and having some kind of conversational aspect in the documentary, you know, like you are uh, drove into the film by the directors themselves. So that really was something that we wanted to have so we can have something more intimate as well, you know. Yeah, I liked how someone pointed out that children were a a big a large factor in in a lot of the stories and how the children were either directly or indirectly the the main focus of some of those stories and how that reflected on the type of home they came from I thought that was really really insightful uh, was there ever uh, a chance or that you were going to actually talk with Stephen King about how he feels uh, about how his uh, his stories have ended up on television and on film. Well, actually, we talked about that before making the documentary, but we thought it wouldn't be uh, it wouldn't have sense, you know, to have Stephen King in the documentary talking about the, the adaptations. Uh, because we really wanted to have the director's point of view and having King in it, it would have been like putting 
uh, two completely different films together. So we talked about that and we said, well, we should stick with the director's point of view. But during the whole process, we were in touch with uh, Stephen King and keeping him ad updated regarding the documentary. He sent us a nice letter saying that he was supporting the project. And uh, when the film was completed, we sent it to him. So yeah, he was um, a knowledge about the film the whole time, but we didn't want to have him, you know, talking about the adaptations because it would have been, yeah, right to do it. I think it would be fun to have him do like a, a recorded inter like a introduction to the to the blu-ray that that could be fun but uh what for you was the most fun or exciting thing to discover while you were talking to all these directors well i think uh it was so interesting to see how much they are passionate about their work it's something that you really you really see when you are talking to directors about their work, they are so passionate and they have all those stories about it and they 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 can speak for hours, you know, about their their project. So it's something that I really enjoyed. And um, to see how much some of them have didn't know uh, really much King before doing uh, their adaptation. And they discovered King while making their film. And after that, they became like fans of Stephen King, even if they didn't know really him and his work very much before. So that was interesting to see. Very nice, very nice. Uh, are you planning to do any future documentaries or are you working on anything now that uh, you're able to talk about? Uh, yeah, my last film actually about Hitchcock, it's called Hitchcock's uh, Pro-Nazi Film. Uh, it's a documentary about uh, Lifeboat and how uh, the film was controversial at the time of its release. Um, so this documentary will be uh, showed at the Venice International Film Festival uh, this year uh, in uh, August and September and uh, still working on a lot of projects, a lot of documentaries to, to come, the next ones, and also um, feature films that are currently uh, in pre-production. So, yeah. Very very exciting. I'm a, I'm a Hitchcock fan as well, so I uh, would, would like to check that one out when you're done with it. Uh, Daphne, thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. <laughs> the documentary is King on Screen in theaters August 11th and available on demand and Blu-ray on September 8th. Keep an eye out for it if you are a fan of Stephen King's uh, stories that have made it to film and television. You should check this one out. And we'll be back with more Slice of Sci-Fi right after this. Slice of Sci-Fi. Escape Pod, the free science fiction podcast Brought to you by Escape Artists. I rippled a welcoming cadence of light beneath my skin. And then, 
seeing the newcomer was human, made my best approximation of a smile. Welcome to Helixer Transgalactic Lounge. Each week, one story told well. She should have never come back to this God's forsaken junk heap of a space station. But she couldn't help but miss it when she was away for too long. From the most astonishing and visionary storytellers of the genre. But because time is a trick of the mind, it can be hacked. And we have gotten good at it. We had to. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on the web at escapepod.org. And on Patreon under EA Podcasts. Hi, this is Barbara Crampton, and you're listening to Slice of Sci-Fi. Ooh, scary. Hi, welcome back to more Slice of Sci-Fi. I'm Summer Brooks. And joining me now is Lewis Howley, who also watched King on screen. And we're going to have a little follow-up discussion about our uh, uh, direct feelings about this docu. Hey, Lewis. Hey, Summer. How are you? I am enjoying documentary season. Me too. I always love a good documentary. And now this one, King on Screen, talks about the impact, the effect that various different Stephen King stories have had on the filmmakers who were responsible for adapting those very stories to uh, film and to television. And as a documentary... I was very intrigued by the different reactions, the different impressions those stories made on the different directors. And just the depth of how impressed uh, Frank Darabont was with different King stories. Yeah, his, his, fascination with the different stories he's done was you could tell he was delighted by these uh by these stories and i had never heard um or maybe i didn't pay enough attention more details about why king <laughs> hated the original uh, the Shining, and I, I have to wonder if that affected his uh, his desire to work with Hollywood for a while. And I, I wish someone could have gone into that, but there's no way you could have gone into that without talking to him about it. And he himself was not the focus of this. It was the directors who put those stories out there for the rest of us to enjoy. Yes, you know, when I watched this documentary, I was thrown in the beginning by uh, the film uses a framing device at the beginning and at the end of, of basically characters uh, acting out various film tropes of Stephen King movies. 
And, uh, and I, as I went into that framing device, I thought, this doesn't seem like a documentary. What am I watching? And I actually went back and, and exited to see that I had the correct screener. And so I found that intriguing, you know, that I was fooled enough, uh, you know, to, and then the documentary itself begins. And what struck me about what you're saying about these directors' feelings about King's work is their discussion of what makes Stephen King's material so readily accessible to the public and also in many cases very filmable you know they mentioned the fact that he gets to the heart of america's small towns as well as the darkness at the heart of america uh how he talks about being brave in small increments to get through your life and he was one of the first apparently to put everyday products into his uh, text. Product placement. <laughs> and that was, and of course, that was at a time, obviously, in his text. He's not getting anything extra for writing about them in a work of fiction. You know, like you do, you know, in a movie, you can at least maybe get some kickback. And I was intrigued by the fact that we don't have any direct and, and I think anyone watching this documentary should know that really there is no direct interview with Stephen King uh, because that's not the focus of the documentary. And I think, you know, I might have had some expectations going in about what the topics of this documentary were. For example, I don't know that if I expected a chronological approach to the movies, you know, going by either book order or movie order and that it would be, would it be comprehensive, you know, and it seems that it was contingent on which directors were willing to speak with the documentarian, I think. Although they do talk about The Shining, in which neither Kubrick, who is not alive anymore, or um, Stephen King, who is not directly interviewed, is um, mentioned, and at length. To boot. So those were some of my thoughts in the beginning, and I, and as I adapted to the, the the tone of the documentary, it made it easier and more accessible to me to get these insights that these directors were having about why Stephen King is a a good a good um, screenwriter in essence. Well. He didn't write the screenplays for those. No, but, but, but the story ideas. Yes, the, the and story. The character yes. development yeah. and the as, themes are all there to adapt to a movie. Yeah, as a as a master storyteller, using yes. his stories to create uh, these movies or, you know, the TV series in the case of the, the first version of the stand, actually both versions, those are epic stories to, to, to retell. And I liked how they presented which 
movies they covered. I thought they spent an unbalanced amount of time on the Green Mile. Uh, that just me. Um, and I think that affected how much time they spent on the, the, the other movies they talked about afterwards. Now, I believe there's more footage, and I'm hoping that there's like an extended edition Blu-ray that includes that extended footage because my, yeah, okay, I'm a little different in terms of what I prefer from my Stephen King stories. I have an appreciation for Pet Cemetery because that book was the first book that I read that I could not and would not go to sleep after. I, I, I stayed up to finish that book and it was two o'clock in the morning by the time I finished it. And I sat up in my bed with the light on until daylight. <laughs> I even tried to get myself to go to sleep by starting another book, a fantasy novel. Didn't work. So I I thought the first Pet Cemetery movie didn't quite capture the awe of horror that the book did. That's just me. But I would have wanted to see more coverage, more discussion about Pet Cemetery, the first movie. I would have wanted to see a lot of talk about all of the Firestarter uh, versions because the original Firestarter, I love that movie. I really do. I love that movie. In, oh, what was it? 2013, maybe? Sci-Fi Channel had a miniseries called Firestarter Rekindled. When was that? Oh, wow. It's older than I thought. 2002. It was a two-part miniseries with a grown-up Charlie who has to come back to deal with other kids like herself uh, that the center has found and is using, a training, rather. And I kind of enjoyed that. I haven't seen the newest Firestarter yet, but I would have, you know, I would have enjoyed hearing how those filmmakers came to do a reimagining or a sequel to the original Firestarter. There definitely wasn't enough time spent on Christine. <laughs> and, and, uh, they, they, they really should have spent more time on the original Carrie. And to my knowledge, Brian De Palma is still alive and kicking. And oh my God, I would, uh, I, I don't know if I'd be able to talk if I had the opportunity to talk to De Palma. He's just done so much that I absolutely adore. It's, it's terrifying. I think for me, one of the omissions was Salem's Lot, uh, but Toby Hooper, the director, is dead. Mm -hmm. um, I think so much of this documentary I, I thought was 
kind of a hodgepodge based on who the director could get an interview with as a director, with the exception of The Shining, you know, which was dwelled on, you know, yet of course Kubrick's long dead and here's King not being interviewed. And we've all heard the stories of how King didn't like that version, and, mm -hmm. you know. Oh, and I was intrigued that the the directors who were interviewed about it, who did not direct it, you know, acknowledged that now that movie is considered a horror classic uh, for for reasons not related to the book. You know, the visuals, right. Uh, right. you know, Jack Nicholson's performance and things like that, and uh, which you know maybe shows the dichotomy, uh, you know, between a written text and a screenplay better than most if you're going to use it as an example uh but um uh, short of that you know it was just like you know oh well we have frank darabont let's interview him at length about shawshank and green mile and uh and the mist for that matter um you know so i i was a little disappointed by I mean, I liked what I saw and heard from the people who were interviewed, but I just felt like it was wanting in terms of its overall coverage and its and its selectivity of who what would be included and what would not be included. Mm -hmm. I think I, I think that might be uh, part of what you're you found wanting. I'm not sure that they edited those segments in the best way possible, especially given how there's a, a, a lot more footage of the directors being interviewed. So I'm wondering if they had to stick to a shorter time, because I, I believe it's about 90 minutes. Uh, I'd have to go put that back and double check, but... I think if they had pushed this to like an hour and 45 minutes instead of an hour and a half, there, there could have been more fulfilling content for, for folks who are fans of uh, Stephen King and, and the movies made from his stories. I did like one, one aspect that I liked uh, because it, it reflected my own thoughts was when they commented on uh, the, uh, King's serialization of the Green Mile mm -hmm. and compared it to Dickens. And I often think, you know, well, Dickens being written in the 19th century is one of the few authors from that century who is routinely read, you know, in our, our day. And I think to myself that, you know, if you think about 20th century literature and now 21st century literature, but definitely with 20th century literature, I mean, Stephen King will be read forever. You know, I mean, his books are just so good that uh, they transcend his horror genre and uh, they're just great stories. And I think they will be the ones that people will keep reading and reading. You know, I wouldn't be surprised to see them on some kind of uh, visual screen on the Star Trek Enterprise, let's put it that way, <laughs> <laughs> or on a holodeck. And, and I, would, I would love to see someday uh, a story about why certain other Stephen King 
stories have not been adapted commercially. We know, well, actually, I don't know how many people do know this, but it's mentioned in the documentary. Stephen King likes to support student filmmakers. So if there is a student filmmaker out there who wants to adapt a Stephen King story, especially any of the short stories, he will license it to them for a dollar, for one dollar. And wow. that's, that's, that's a hell of a way to get your foot in the door. Um, and so I, I have heard stories. I heard, I think maybe it was in the late 80s, early on, I'm not sure what, but Stephen King collaborated on a story with uh, Peter Straub called oh, I think I remember that. The Talisman. Yes. And I really liked that book. There was another book that was uh, a fantasy that Stephen King did called The Eyes of the Dragon. And they recently republished that in a trade paperback format. And it sent me looking for my original mass market paperback copy. And I haven't found it yet. And I'm annoyed because the reason, the main reason I got it was because A, it was a Stephen King story. And B, it had a gorgeous embossed golden red dragon on the front cover and you know I, I just thought it was it was striking a striking cover and I'm like there are so many king stories that have not been covered and uh I wanted I don't I didn't have time to to ask uh the director Daphne Bayware this um running man is adapted from a Richard Bachman story, who is Stephen King. I, that's a that's a fantastic story. To, I mean, I would I would love to hear uh, about the making of that in more detail. There is, <laughs> I'm going to show off my my geekiness here. There is a version of The Running Man on DVD. That is jam-packed full of extras and commentary. And the newest Blu-ray release of that movie doesn't have any of it. And I'm, I'm sitting here it, it, looking at this going, where's all that stuff that was on that old DVD? And it, it, you know, how, can they, how can they sell a Blu-ray? of that movie and cut out all the extras. I mean, the Blu-ray has more, more space on it than the DVD. It's not that hard. Oh, well. Anyway, but yeah, no, I, for the most part, I enjoyed the documentary. I'm curious to see what happens when they, or if they release it on a physical media, if they include extra footage, if they include more commentary from the director. I would definitely love to find out how much more of those interviews with those directors we didn't get, you know? Exactly. It would be nice to have a, an extra that was just the complete interviews with each director that was interviewed, you know, because then we could see it in order for one thing. And, uh, you know, instead of just a, a, a head popping up every now and then, 
<laughs> and, uh, you know, and maybe you know who the director is, and maybe you don't, and maybe you've seen the film that they did, and maybe you didn't, you know, it, 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 I would appreciate more extras. And, and I, you know, I really am intrigued to hear if, if the director is going to uh, open up about the filmmaking decisions, the editing decisions, mm. the interviewing decisions, uh, things like that, you know, the decision to not go chronological, you know, things like that mm-hmm. would be intrigue me. I'm I'm curious to find out to to know how much more of the discussions with the uh, the directors there were because if each of those movies was talked about as long as they as you know spent as much time on them as they did with the Green Mile, I think that documentary would be closer to two and a half hours, and I personally would not mind. Oh, no, not at all. In fact, I think that would be an improved documentary, quite frankly, <laughs> uh, because, uh, you know, you could watch it at your leisure and get the complete picture, or I should say a more complete picture of the information that was available, to, that was made available to the director before the edit, mm-hmm. the uh, edit we saw. Well, I am... Looking forward to seeing how other people react to the documentary and to finding out what extras, uh, what extra content we might be able to get. So, and just just because I can, there's a Firestarter DVD out there that includes the first movie and the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries. Just saying, it's out there. Wow. <laughs> That's worth it. And I thought so. Great, I it's thought a great so. book, and, and I agree with you that that first movie uh, with George C. Scott and Drew Barrymore is a classic. Yep. So, any any other thoughts? No, I think that pretty much sums it up. I thought it was. Uh, I'm very glad I watched it. I mean, I learned a lot, you know, from what was covered, and um, you know, I'm torn because you know I don't think you can rate a film on what you would have done differently with the film or what should have been included and wasn't, you know, I think you have to take the film at face value mm-hmm. and judge it on its own merits, you know, yeah. rather than because, it, you know, potential things that you wanted to have in it. And on its own merits, I think it, it definitely is worth viewing. Oh yeah, definitely. And you know, for me, it, the the fascinating part was finding out how Stephen King's stories impacted these directors to the point where they felt they needed to make these movies. So yeah, yes. I, in I, fact, I, some of these uh, directors were influenced as children, and I found that very fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. that this childhood reading of Stephen King would inform their adulthood. Stories touch us all in many different ways. And if it inspires someone to grow up and make a, an epic film that will be remembered through the, through the test of time, I'm good with that. Oh yeah. You know, I, I can easily see the eventual library of America collection of Stephen King's works. 
be a couple of full shelves. Oh, no kidding. Lots and lots of shelves. Cool. He's very prolific. Yeah. Well, Lewis, thank you for joining me to share your thoughts on this documentary. And thank you. But how about you? What do you enjoy about uh, the anticipation of reading a new King story or seeing a new King adaptation on television or in theaters? Are there King stories that you would have loved to have seen been adapted that, that no one's tried yet? Let me know. Give us a call. The number is 602-635-6976 or shoot me an email, summer at sliceofsci-fi.com. You can also come by the website, sliceofsci-fi.com, and leave your thoughts in the discussion section for this episode on the website, or hit me up on Twitter, at Slice of Sci-Fi. Yes, I'm still calling it Twitter. Whatever. <laughs> you can listen to Slice of Sci-Fi on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Player FM, and iHeartRadio. And remember, at the end of the month, Stitcher will no longer be offering access to podcasts. So if you're using Stitcher to listen to the show, thank you very much. But you're going to have to find a new way to follow us. And if you're listening on Apple or using Podchaser, consider leaving us a review or a rating. Let folks know that you're enjoying the show and maybe they should check it out for themselves. I'd like to thank everyone who's currently helping to support Slice of Sci-Fi and all the other podcasts and websites in the Slice of Sci-Fi universe, which include the Babylon Podcast and Writers After Dark and a few other sites. Those donations, those pledges really do help uh, keep all this media online, all the websites, the hosting for the websites, the hosting for the media, that is paid for with your supporting donations and pledges. And for that, I am very grateful. Thank you so, so much. And if you'd like to add your support, the place to go is patreon.com slash slice of sci-fi Pick a tier, any tier, and you will become eligible for perks. Every month, I hit up the random number generator and pick an email address out of the hat. That person gets to choose from Blu-rays, 4Ks, DVDs, uh, and books. Materials I get for review purposes here at all the shows, and those items. I don't have the space to keep it all. So you, supporters, listeners, fans of the shows, you get first dibs. That's some really cool stuff. It's my way of sharing physical media and showing my gratitude for your support. Uh, if you'd rather donate every now and then, the place to go is paypal.me slash sci-fi summer. You can also go to sliceofsci-fi.net. Uh, it's a curated shop. 
items, movies, books, TV shows that we are fans of that uh, you may have forgotten about or maybe even never heard of in some cases. You can purchase those items through sliceofsci-fi.net, which is a curated affiliate shop, as I said. And those purchases through that website really do help support our efforts here. And that'll do it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with more Slice of Sci-Fi next time. Take care. Mm -hmm.